You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. What I want to try to do today is talk about how legislation on healthcare is actually passed in Washington, D.C., how people get involved with it, how I've been able to get involved with healthcare, and I've been very blessed to work with people I never would have expected to work with in Washington, D.C. to get legislation passed. I worked with both Republicans and Democrats, so I can give you a little bit of a perspective on how both parties approach passing legislation. Now, I know that right now that we're involved in an election and that coronavirus is a key part of the campaigns on both sides. And with the passing of Judge Ginsburg, that's going to be a major part of this election, especially looks like that the nomination and the vote is going to be right up until the time of the election. But health care reform is not going to go away. We may or may not discuss more of it before the election because it gets sidetracked with some of these other issues. But certainly after the election, regardless of who winds up in the presidency or how the House and the Senate wind up, health care reform to replace Obamacare or to adjust Obamacare, to expand Obamacare, to go to a single-payer system, to go to Medicare for all, whatever that system is going to be is going to be a major part of the debate. So I thought it might be interesting for listeners out there to understand how health insurance reform gets done and how people like myself, who never expected to be involved that much in Washington, kind of followed a path that led me to the inside of Washington, D.C. and healthcare reform. So let me start my story back in 1990. In 1990, Jay Rockefeller took over the Congressional Study Committee from Claude Pepper, who had passed away. He passed away in 1989, and that committee was looking at national health reform. And they ultimately came out with a report in 1992. It was on the Democrats' proposal for national health reform. And within that package and ideas on how health reform should be created, how we should move forward in the 1990s. Uh, it defined mental health package. It had a specific design, number of days in the hospital, number of days out of hospital. But it said, or an actuarial equivalent. Now, nobody was really sure what that meant. So the American Psychological Association looking at this, and they're obviously a key part, a key association, and a key organization where its members are providing for mental health services. They didn't know what that meant either. So they wanted an actuary to help define what an actuarial equivalent was. Well, they just happened to be a client of Coopers and Libran. And the key contact at Coopers and Libran was a partner named Tim Ray in our Washington, D.C. office. Now, I had just been newly hired in 1992 as a new actuary at Cooper's Library, and I was one of the few actuaries in the whole company. In fact, when I set up my office and I put up my fellow of the Society of Actuaries, which is the highest educational uh, degree you can get from the uh, in the actual profession, 
people would come in almost with awe, and I kind of laughed and chuckled because I had known so many fellows of the Society of Actuaries in the insurance world where I came from. But in the consulting world, at least at Cooper's Library, there were very few fellows of the Society of Actuaries. So the word got out pretty quickly that I had just been hired and had these designations. So Tim Ray called me, and he told me that the American Psychological Association needed some help. And they needed a healthcare actuary to help them with understanding what in the world this national health reform package meant when it talked about an actual equivalent in the mental health package. Well, I talked to them, and I ultimately submitted a proposal. I accepted that challenge of trying to figure out what it was they meant and what kind of designs or mental health services could be provided under national health reform that seemed to be developing at the time and what this actual equivalent term meant. So once I accepted the engagement, I tried to build a pricing model. And I had some good help uh, on my staff that were sort of uh, master model builders. I don't claim to be one myself, but a fellow named Rick Irwin I had hired almost immediately at becoming um, uh, a, a employee at Cooper's Library, and I became a partner about a year later. But as at the time, I was um, I was an employee, a staff person, and I was able to hire some staff to build up a part of that organization. And Rick Irwin was a um, a really good actuary uh, at building uh, models, pricing models. And Rick was an associate of the Society of Actuary and somebody I very much respected for his capabilities. So ultimately, uh, Rick built a model, and we worked together on some of the assumptions and how this would work. And I was ultimately invited to Washington, D.C., to the American Psychological Offices, to explain and demonstrate my model and its interpretation of what in the world this actual equivalence meant. And it could be a trade-off between inpatient days and outpatient. Uh, instead of having 60 inpatient days and, and uh, you know, three days a week outpatient, we could mix them or match them up in different ways and try to find something that had the same uh, pricing level but had different benefit levels. Or we could do different benefit levels to match up a pricing level or various other combinations. Well, unbeknownst to me, the American Psychological Association was working with Ron Finch, a Ph.D. psychologist at Bell South. Well, Finch had a specific mental health design at Bell South. And he knew what their costs were from the extensive history and cost analysis that he had done for actual employees under a given plan design. So I was asked to input to that Bell South design, put it into my model, and check it against the accuracy of the outcome of the pricing estimate of my model versus what Bell South actually performed with that model. Well, fortunately, it turned out that the model that, that Rick Irwin and I had put together, when I put in the Bell South actual plan design, the model spit out a cost within five cents of the Bell South actual costs. Voila! We had a model that actually, under this test, which I didn't know was going to happen until I got to Washington, D.C. that day, turned out we got credibility by reproducing the cost, basically, of what Bell South had with somebody that the American Psychological Association had a lot of faith in, Ron Finch. Well, strangely enough, I had never met Ron Finch, but it turns out that he actually worked 
in Atlanta in the exact same building that I worked at with Cooper's Library. Very strange coincidence. Well, needless to say, I was further engaged to use the model. Now, in the spring of 1992, President Clinton proposed what ultimately became to be known as Hillary Care. It was a national health reform that the Democrats wanted to put in and that Clinton had campaigned on as well. And I was recommended by the American Psychological Association and accepted on a Clinton task force studying the cost of mental health benefits under the Hillary Care model. Well, I spent many days in Washington, D.C., on the cost implications of various mental health plan designs. The committee was trying to put together an actual plan design that would be recommended under Hillary Care for this national health reform package. Well, working on this program, by September 19, by September 22, 1992, the Clinton administration had pretty much put together what they wanted, and they had done some initial pricing, but we really hadn't fully studied the entire program. But on that September 22, 1992 date, President Clinton held a joint conference, a joint session of Congress to announce his plans and stated that his plan had been reviewed by actuaries and big six accounting firms, of which Cooper's and Library was one of the big six at the time. Today, there's only four, but at the time, they were called the big six. Well, in classic President Clinton form, he announced to the world that his numbers had been reviewed by actuaries at the big six accounting firms. Now, having been working on the mental health pricing piece, I had a partner out of San Francisco, John Burko, who was looking at other parts of the Hillary Care pricing, the non-mental health pieces to a large degree. Well, that classic Clinton announcement didn't say that we had approved his numbers, his cost figures. He said it had been reviewed by actuaries of big six accounting firms, giving the belief that these numbers had been audited and approved and recognized by actuaries. That was not the case. So the next day, both John Burko and I felt like we had been had. We had been brought in as actuaries, not for our real work, but to be used as pawns and announcing that actuaries had reviewed the health care proposal of the Clintons. Well, we called the American Academy of Actuaries the next day and said we'd been had. The result of that was that the media and the press that came out of that and the inside politics recognition that we had not approved his numbers, his cost figures, got the administration, the Clinton administration, to open up their books, all their pricing assumptions on their entire plan. So we got to review almost everything and got to make it more public as to what the actual cost figures were. Now, as we go through this, you can see that it was really almost by happenstance that I get involved. Now, I want to talk in the next segment about some very interesting inside meetings that I had with Democratic staff, with Senator Kennedy's staff, with talking with people 
and the results of what Senator Dole and Tipper Gore and some policy experts like Ken Thorpe and others did during this period of time. When we moved from, there's a proposal out there, we did some initial pricing, we did some guidance on plan design, tried to give some technical advice and insight, but then we kind of got had. And now we're going to really be able to get in and look at the pricing assumptions on the full plan design that was being proposed. I got there by happenstance. My politics don't agree with the Clintons, but that was not my role. My role was to be a technical expert, which I tried to do. And I also really enjoyed being that fly on the wall as this process was unfolding. Now, what I'm describing to you right now is just the very first step. I think you're going to find the stories that followed up this September 22nd, 1992 presentation to the joint session of Congress by President Clinton. Very interesting from the insider's perspective. Let's take a quick break, and I'll come back and tell you about some of these stories about what really happened on the inside and how legislation tends to be modified and adjusted without the public knowing half of what's really going on. So if you'll stay with me, we'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Ron Bachman, you're on Healthcare Insight, and we're talking about how health legislation has actually gotten through Washington, what the inside is. Let's pull back the curtain and find out how some of this stuff really works. I've been very fortunate and very blessed in my career of consulting to be involved a lot with Washington. As a political junkie, it's been a lot of fun. So when we last left before the commercial, 
I had talked about how I inadvertently, in many ways, just serendipitously got involved with healthcare through the mental health issues that the American Psychological Association was concerned with. And only because one view of national health reform that was established by Senator Jay Rockefeller after Claude Pepper, House of Representatives member, chaired a committee that got taken over by Rockefeller, how he talked about an actuarial equivalent for mental health benefits. And that I happened to be an actuary that just was connected through some partnership relationships, got me involved in Washington on mental health and mental health pricing. Well, I was assigned to a committee. That committee was chaired by the chief of staff from Senator Kennedy. Now, I don't recall his name, but he was the chief of staff. And we would have meetings at least weekly, if not more frequently, on the type of mental health benefits that should be involved, the type of pricing that might be there. I was a technical expert. They didn't know my politics, which was very much against Hillary Care, but that didn't matter. I was there as a technician to try to price out and use this model that had been verified by the American Psychological Association and a coalition of mental health organizations that had gotten together and were trying to influence the ultimate legislation around Hillary Care with regards to mental health benefits. Well, when the 1992 joint session of Congress was held by President Clinton, the public was generally in favor of some national health reform. The market was dysfunctional. People were without insurance. We had high levels of uninsured people. They would claim 40, 50 million people were uninsured. So there was a lot of positive publicity. The press was pushing the idea. Hillary was very popular as a first lady, and she had taken over the whole idea of this health reform. And I was on this committee that was headed up by the uh, Senator Kennedy's chief of staff. Now, in the nine months following that joint session of Congress, There was a lot of pushback from the Republicans, a lot of pushback from advertising um, on TV about how terrible these health reform would be and how much it would cost. And yet Clinton was saying that the cost was going to be fairly minimal. He had a number that, again, my partner, John Burko, and I had not agreed on. We had not finalized anything, but the administration was sort of casting this as a no-brainer, wouldn't be that much cost. But the bureaucracy was sort of the issue that developed, and Senator Bob Dole of Kansas at the time started to put out a chart that showed a big spaghetti mishmash of organizations and bureaucratic structure in order to run this Hillary Care. And it was a chart that was spread out across the media. Uh, The public became aware of looking at it, and it just looked like an enormous growth of government to control our health care coverages, our health care needs, our access to providers. 
And so by the summer of 1993, the public interest in Hillary care was waning rapidly. And you're ultimately going to be having an election coming up the next year in 1994. And the public was really getting skeptical about this Hillary care proposal that was there. So let me tell you a very interesting background on a meeting that was being held by the uh, Kennedy's chief of staff and that I was present as the actuary trying to price out mental health benefits. Now, I have to tell you that during the entire process that I was working, which now at this point is maybe nine months, ten months, working uh, with the mental health committee and other issues around the um, health care reform, is that I was biting my tongue a lot. I was trying not to bring in my own thoughts because my own thoughts were really irrelevant. Um, I'm there as a technician, an actuary, trying to do pricing, and I tried to do the job the best I could. But as Bob Dole's charts started to take hold in the public about the enormous bureaucracy that was going to create, be created, the enthusiasm for Hillary Care really started to wane. The pricing issue was still there. Pricing was still a concern. Public knew it was going to start to cost a lot more than the administration, but um, there were no real numbers out there. So as I'm sitting in this meeting, and this is probably the scariest moment of my entire time in Washington, as I was sitting there, the staff and the chief of staff there running the meeting turned to me. For the first time ever in like eight, nine, ten months. And they said, Ron, we're losing support for this mental health reform and for the reform package in its entirety. So do you have any ideas as to how we can combat this whole structure that Senator Dole is putting out with all this spaghetti chart process that he's got everybody scared about, the growth of government? I kind of made a big mistake at that point because I had been wanting to respond, wanting to put my two cents in, and I decided, well, maybe this is the moment. So I turned to the committee, most of which were all represented by Democrats, and I said, you know, in putting together these programs and these guidelines and these structures, you're kind of doing a couple things. One, it's almost a one-size-fits-all for everybody, but more importantly, your structure on how you access these benefits is not really leaving enough choice of the individual. You're not allowing sort of a free market structure of options and choices by the consumer. Maybe if you start to think about, instead of having bureaucracy run every aspect of the healthcare reform, that you give the people more choices and more options. Utilize the free market instead of government control. And that might create a better acceptance of some of the ideas that you have out there. Well, the response back was not exactly what I had expected. I should have, but I, I didn't really expect it. The chief of staff turned to me and in the scariest moment of my time there looked at me and said, and when has the free market ever worked? And I was just stunned. Here the whole country is built on the idea of the free market, of capitalism. And here is a highly placed staffer 
for a very important senator. Yes, he's a liberal senator, but I really didn't expect the comment so bluntly and so directly back. When has the free market ever worked? Now, I made a second mistake. I turned to them and I said, you know, let me give you an example of what I'm thinking about. What if you were to walk into a clothing store and you have all these choices of clothes, all these choices of suits and casual clothes and sports jackets, different color slacks? As a consumer, I can walk in there with all these different options and have a choice as to what I want to wear. Try to make those choices available to people who are in health care. Give them some options. And I thought that was going to be a great example. But you know what happened next? They came back to me and they said, oh, if I want a new suit, I go to my clothier and let him pick it out. Well, my goodness, that was like the ultimate liberal elite response back to me. And I just was floored. So whoop. I go back into my box and I just keep my mouth shut and I said, well, y'all work on it and let's see how this thing turns out and I'm ready to do more pricing on whatever structures that you want to establish. But it, it's, while that was many years ago at this point, really almost more than 25 years ago, it is so vivid in my memory as to how obstinate, elitist, that group of liberals can be trying to create national health reform. And I'll give you some other examples as we go through here, because I think that's one of the most important things to learn. You don't have to be a political junkie or an insider to understand the arrogance of people who run Washington and who they invite into the meetings, who they allow to participate, who they allowed as the experts. They can stack the deck against almost anything they want when they're in control. Now, during this time, I also met with Tipper Gorstaff and a health policy expert, Ken Thorpe. I think he's even still a professor at Emory University in Atlanta. And that was a fascinating meeting because while we talked rationally about health care reform policy and cost issues and how we were going to go about this and what recommendations we might be able to support or, or work through or help or assist in any technical way, we actually met in the old executive office building. And the offices that we meet met at had a fascinating history. Now, the old executive office building, for those of you who may not have been to Washington or involved in any way in the politics up there, is an attached building to the White House. And many meetings where you would go and say, we're going to meet at the White House, you're actually meeting in the old executive office building. They're sort of connected. They're separate buildings, obviously, but they're connected through various um, uh, channels and hallways and underground passages. But what I remember the most about that meeting with Tipper Gore staff was that in that office that we met, a big room, was a bunch of desks. And Tipper Gore staff turned to me and said, look at that desk over there. Do you recognize it at all? And I said, no, I really don't. He said, well, look at the um, the right-hand side, and they went over and they, they pulled it open, and it was like a, a door. He said, this 
is John Kennedy's desk. And you remember the picture, and if you're as old as I am or if you've seen some videos, little John John was under President Kennedy's desk, and he opened up that door, and the media caught that picture and kind of encapsulated the idea that this was the um, the Camelot family um, that was in Washington, and it was just a fun time to be there with the Kennedys and, and the, the children that they had and little John John. The other part of that room, which was fascinating, was that it was the location where George H.W. Bush would go to get away from the actual White House in the Oval Room to read and to study and just get away in some private. So it was a fascinating time to be in that uh, location and that place, and I still have very fond memories of seeing things I never thought I would have been exposed to or seen while I was in Washington working on mental health issues. Let's take another quick break, and I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about the insight into Washington, D.C. and health reform politics. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight. We're talking about some interesting behind-the-scenes activities in Washington, D.C. that I've been able to personally experience. And I'm glad to sort of tell you some of these uh, stories because uh, I think they're kind of fascinating to see how things actually work in Washington, how legislation is actually passed, how the staff works, how all this sort of interacts in various ways and shapes and forms on health reform and the political environment. Now, we know today that uh, the politics are much tougher, uh, much more angry in its tone, much more partisanship. But that certainly was part of the deal back in the 1990s, but obviously not to the extent it is today. So let me tell you another story, a little bit of an insight that I think you'll find fascinating. I was working on this mental health committee, and there were a number of plan design suggestions that were just not sufficient to meet the Clinton administration's interest in mental health. And it was very profound. They wanted good mental health. Um, Tipper Gore, um, Hillary Clinton, and even past uh, president, uh, first lady, um, Rosalind Carter, big advocate of mental health improvements, mental health parity. And so I was kind of in the middle of all this. And while we were looking at and the committee was designing programs, it really didn't meet the standards that were desired by the controller behind Hillary of all this health reform. And that was a Harvard professor named Ira Magaziner. Now, one of the people that I was working with, with this committee, and a representative in Washington, was a representative from Ohio. His name was Ted Strickland. Now, the reason I got involved with Ted Strickland in the mental health committee is Ted Strickland uh, is a psychologist. Now, at this time, we didn't know what the future led for Ted Strickland, but he ultimately became uh, governor of Ohio. But during this time, he was elected as a representative. And they wanted to meet with the White House and Ira Magaziner around mental health benefits. So Ted Strickland and I were talking about the design and the structure and some of the issues. He said, well, let's go over to meet with Ira Magaziner at the White House and we'll sit down and we'll talk about what they want, and then we can figure out what the pricing of it would be and what kind of plan designs 
uh, we should be proposing. So I said, okay, great. Let's go. That'll be kind of fascinating. And I was just enjoying being along for the ride. Well, Ted Strickland's wife was his chief of staff. So the three of us piled into this little um, compact car. It was Ted's car and drove over to the White House. Actually, to the executive office building, as I said, is part of the White House, but many would say it's the White House because it's part of it. So we enter through the gates, get checked in by all the security, and we go to Ira Magaziner's office. It's in the old executive office building. And we sit outside in the um, ante room waiting to meet with Ira Magaziner. And along the way, there were... Two sort of instances I'd like to relate just to show you what can happen in politics because Ted Strickland didn't know really who I was other than I was doing good work on mental health benefits and was encouraged to participate in this whole activity by the American Psychological Association, of which he was a member. Well, along the way on our drive to the White House, Ted and his wife were talking back and forth and just kind of making small talk. And I remember one particular comment that he made that really struck me because I have a strong faith as a Christian. But Ted was talking about his upcoming re-election that would happen in 1994. And he was telling his wife and kind of speaking to me at the same time about how he had won the election, but he was going to be in a tough fight for re-election because of the damn conservatives in the southern part of Ohio. And I thought, wow, I can't believe that an elected official would talk that way about a significant part of the community of faith-based individuals. Struck me then, I could not believe he wound up winning um, and becoming Ohio's governor when he has such disdain for a large part of the population that he should have been um, representing. So let me move back to the uh, White House and the uh, ante room for Ira Magaziner. And again, Ted, just speaking sort of without any real filter, uh, we're in the outside ante room. He's trying to prepare me for this meeting with Ira Magaziner. And maybe this is the second most striking time, other than that time in uh, with um, Ted Kennedy's chief of staff that I mentioned earlier where Ted is telling me about preparing to meet with Iron Magaziner, and he looks at me and he says, now remember, Ira is a socialist. And I'm like, what? I know that, but I don't want to hear it. I really don't want to know that so blatantly up front. But Ted knew what his, what Ira Magaziner's political philosophy was. It was as a socialist which means that they're going to try to take over the entire healthcare system and make it big government healthcare. I could not believe that he verbalized that, but it was in a moment where he didn't really know who he was talking to and just assumed that I was a supporter of the progressive movement, if you will, that's now in 2020 come out so strongly. So it's been sitting there in the White House under Democratic leadership, but it was a rather striking um, meeting that I will always remember. A later conflict developed with Magaziner because we never actually met with him. He was on the phone so much that the meeting got canceled. We walked out with these little stories and 
memories that I have about that uh, that drive and that meeting. But there was a later conflict that uh, with Magaziner because he wanted to do what he wanted to do, but he couldn't get the price down for the benefits that he wanted to put in, which was very extensive benefits. And what he wanted and what HHS and was CMS, the Health and Human Services, and the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services wanted at the time, because they were under Democratic control, they wanted to put in something very expensive. They didn't want to price it. It doesn't matter to me as a technician what he wanted to put in. I would just do the pricing on it. Well, he wanted to take the pricing of a limited benefit, but in the design that would get through any future legislation when this thing finally came to a vote, he wanted to put in a more extensive benefit. So he wanted to kind of ignore the work that I was actually doing for him. Well, as an actuary, I didn't think that was the right thing to do for him to do that, obviously, but it was not the right thing for me to be silent about it. So I called an actuary friend of mine. His name was Guy King, and he was the chief actuary at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. He was the chief actuary for Medicare, uh, was his official title. And I informed him of Magaziner's plan to sort of bypass the pricing recommendations where he Magaziner was going to use the old pricing estimate for the new benefit that he wanted. And Guy disclosed this scheme to reporters, to the White House, to Republicans, and it stopped Magaziner. And Magaziner was not happy. And he wanted to discredit me. You know, you hear about these things that go on in Washington where people get discredited and lies are made up about them, distortions about their career or something they said or did. Well, Magaziner wanted to discredit me. Well, let me tell you a little bit about that. Hopefully I can get this in before our next break. But during this process of my pricing, I also worked with a, a fellow named Wayne Ferguson, who was an actuary over at HHS, and he knew what was going on as well. But I worked with him and to come up with the pricing that was not to the liking of Magaziner. So I come home to Atlanta. I'm out away from Washington. And I get a call one day from a fellow named Henry Aaron. Now, Henry Aaron is not the baseball player that the Atlanta Braves had. Henry Aaron was um, a fellow at the Brookings Institute, a, a liberal-leaning institute, think tank. And he said, Ron, um, we'd like for you to come to Washington and uh, talk to us about Medicaid pricing on mental health benefits. And I said, really, that's not my bailiwick. I'm not particularly good at that. Um, I'm more around mental health benefits on commercial products, which is what um, Hillary Care was trying to address. I was not doing mental health pricing on any government programs, Medicare, Medicaid, simply on the um, program that uh, around Hillary Care and what people would get in the marketplace from their employer or buying private insurance directly from an insurance company. Well, what happened in that process was I was invited into a room, and I thought it was just going to be me and Henry Aaron and maybe one or two others. Well, it didn't turn out that way. I walked into a room that was like a giant boardroom, and there were probably 12 to 15 people around this table. And when I walked in, I was kind of shocked. 
what was this meeting going to be all about? Why were they asking me to come to Washington when I had already told them that this was not my area of expertise? And since it wasn't really from the committee, my reimbursement wouldn't normally be paid. But Henry Aaron said, don't worry about it. I've got a budget. Just come up here and submit your travel bills to me. I'll take care of it. So, I, you know, as a dutiful citizen trying to do the best they could, I didn't know what his agenda really was. And I had already told him my limitation on experience, but they wanted me to come up. They insisted on me coming up. So I said, okay, I'll come up. Let's talk about mental health pricing, mental health benefits. Uh, didn't know if they wanted to talk about something, how Medicaid would fit into Hillary Care or vice versa, or what I did might be adapted uh, to the uh, Medicaid marketplace. I really wasn't sure. But the stage was set. I flew to Washington. I was escorted to this room. I opened the door. And there was Henry Aaron from the Brookings Institute standing at the end of a table with a whole group of people, 12 to 15, around this table. And I was to have a chair that was vacant at the far end of the table on the opposite side of uh, Henry Aaron. So I walked into the room, walked around the table. I saw a couple people that I recognized and that I had worked with before, and I'll tell you about that in just a second. So I walked around slowly trying to figure out what in the world was going on, and I sat at the end of the table where there was the empty seat. Well, what happened after that should send chills up anybody's back who gets involved with the federal government. And I'm going to tell you about that story in our next segment. So come back and join me again for what happens in this mystery room with all the activity and all the interest around me and my work on mental health for Hillary Care. Be right back. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of Healthcare Insight. And today, I'm really trying to give you some insight into what healthcare reform is and my experience in Washington, D.C., which wasn't always so great. It was always interesting, but wasn't always so great. So the last segment, I left you off with the idea that we went into this room, big, long table with 12 or 15 people, and trying to figure out what in the world they had invited me to Washington to do. Well, as I walked into that room... There were a couple of people I recognized that I'd been working with on mental health issues, along with the pricing work that I had done. There were a couple of economists that had also been working on mental health pricing and their models. One was a fellow named Richard Frank from Harvard, and the other was a fellow named Tom McGuire from Boston College. Those two kind of teamed up to write a lot of articles, and later on I'll tell you how we continued to work together after this meeting. But as I walked into this meeting, I saw Richard Frank and Tom McGuire and walked past them as I went to that empty seat at the end of the uh, conference table. And I greeted them. And when I sat down, I was introduced by Henry Aaron. And the first thing I got to say was, I'm glad to see Richard Frank and Tom McGuire here. Because if you're using them, if you're drawing on their knowledge of mental health and their pricing, their economic models, 
I can assure you that my actuarial model has factored in most of the things that Richard Frank and Tom McGuire have factored into their economic models. And I looked at them and they kind of shook their head because we had been working together before. So as we went through and they were challenging some of my work and some of my assumptions around the Hillary Care pricing model, it clearly didn't have anything to do with what I was brought to Washington to talk about on that phone call with Henry Aaron, where he said he wanted to talk about Medicaid. Well, it didn't have anything to do with Medicaid. It had to do with challenging my actuarial pricing model. But what he didn't know was that I had been working with Richard Frank and Tom McGuire, who were well-respected and accepted by the Brookings Institute. So as they challenged my model, I kept explaining what I was doing and how it was working, and that I had factored in various features of the economic model that Richard Frank and Tom McGuire had included. And then the meeting kind of ended abruptly, and everybody got up and left, but there was only myself and Wayne Ferguson sort of dragging behind the rest of the group, because I had been working with Wayne Ferguson, who is an actuary at Health and Human Services, working on mental health pricing. So I had touched bases with all the, the key technical, actuarial, economic people in the work that I was doing. And Wayne pulled me aside and he said, Ron, you don't understand what just happened, do you? I said, I'm confused. Why was I brought up here? Why was they, Why were they so interested in my economic model when I was told I was coming up to talk about Medicaid pricing, which I told them I didn't have an expertise on? He says, well, you don't understand, Ron. What they were doing was bringing into a room to chastise you and destroy your reputation as an actuary for putting together a model that did not produce the results that they wanted. They didn't produce the results that Ira Magaziner wanted. So you just dodged a bullet because they were intent on destroying you. But when you said, and when they agreed that Richard Frank and Tom McGuire were part of your model, that you were consistent and had been working together, you completely deflated what they were going to do. So that's why the meeting ended so fast and you dodged a bullet. Well, I know other people in Washington, especially these days, get their character assassinated by the left, by the liberals, by the progressives. And so I now have a much better appreciation and sympathy for those who have to go to Washington and put up with that. Mine was a very minor incident that could have been worse if I didn't have the luck and the good fortune to actually have touch base and have had the right people in the room that they respected so that they couldn't tear apart me without tearing apart their own consultants. So just a very interesting side story on how your reputation can be online and you don't even know it. But let me finish up this segment by taking the next steps. The next steps on mental health went to the idea that when my partner, John Burko and myself were actually doing the overall pricing for Hillary Care because our models now had the credibility and had been attempted to be uh, with character assassination destroyed as the work that we did. Hillary Care ultimately failed. It failed mainly on the fact that the prices were more than double 
what the Clinton administration had been suggesting they were. Now, let me tell you the real lesson that was learned by the Democrats when we ultimately get to Obamacare. The problem with the Hillary Care approach was that she actually tried to define the benefit within the legislation, which meant that we could actually price out that benefit design. And that's what ultimately led to the downfall. Well, we get to Obamacare, if you remember. Obamacare said there are only 10 areas that were going to be covered, and we're not going to tell you anything else. We'll tell you about that we got 10 broad categories, and so there was no pricing that you could do on something that was that vague. And so they didn't get into the problems of the real cost of Obamacare because there was nothing to price out. All right, well, let's set that aside and wrap up the session with a continuation on the mental health work that I was doing in Washington. Because over the next couple of years after Hillary Care failed, I continued to work on mental health plan design and the pricing for the American Psychological Association for the potential of national health reform that they expected to sort of come back around. So let's fast forward to 1995. Continuing to work with Richard Frank and Tom McGuire, there was an interesting story about how the three of us were doing a joint presentation to staff in Washington around mental health and mental health issues, mental health stigma, mental health pricing. And so we had a group of staffers in this fairly large room, and Richard Frank got up and gave a presentation. Tom McGuire got up, gave his presentation, both more of an economic kind of a perspective of mental health parity. And then I got up and did my actuarial presentation. Well, in the middle of my presentation, this one, what I thought was a main staffer, got up and walked right in front of me. Didn't say excuse me, didn't say anything. He just got up and walked in front of me. And I thought, how rude. And when my presentation was over, I approached one of the other staffers that I knew. I said, who was that guy that, that left, walked in front of me? Now, he did come back to listen to the rest of my presentation, but I thought it was kind of rude that he didn't say excuse me or anything else. And they said, well, that's Paul Wellstone. He was relatively new in being elected to the U.S. Senate. I said, oh, it's okay. If it's a senator, he can do whatever he wants to do. So that was my first introduction to uh, Paul Wellstone. Well, that was critical because Paul Wellstone was a real champion for mental health benefits. And I did cost estimates on a proposal in 1996 that he pushed forward when he couldn't get full mental health parity. He got something much less than that. He got something that really only covered um, parity, equality, if you will, on the benefit designs for annual and lifetime limits. And my pricing on that was about 50 cents per person per month or about $6 annually. I thought it was fairly minimal. And you can have annual lifetime parity, but if you don't have day limit uh, or hospital limit, um, uh, um, uh, unlimited amounts, then it doesn't really matter if you have a million dollars a lifetime limit if you still only have 30 days inpatient or uh, you have uh, one day a week or three days a, a month or whatever on limitations on outpatient services. So it seemed pretty minimal to me. Now, other cost estimates that came in from other consulting firms and other advocacy groups came in much higher than my 50 cents. I have to tell you that ultimately, after that legislation was was actually passed, 
that the actual cost came in at less than 10 cents. So I was the closest. I was still five times higher, but others were, were many multiples of that higher. They were, they were several dollars was their cost estimate trying to defeat the legislation on a cost basis. So I thought the actual legislation of having parity that passed in 1996, it was called the Paul Wellstone Mental Health Parity Act of 1996. I thought that was kind of a useless piece of legislation because it really didn't do anything practical. But I'm not a politician, and I didn't understand the genius of Paul Wellstone at the time because what it did was it energized the states to go out and pass mental health parity on their own. And so for the next several years, I actually – testified in 30 to 35 states on mental health parity, did pricing on a state basis to get those pieces of legislation passed. It was a very exciting time for me because I believed in mental health parity. I wanted to get it passed, and my cost estimates were much lower than many other uh, cost estimates out there, and ultimately mine proved to be the most accurate anyway. So there are a lot of very interesting stories about what happened in state by state, and time is running out on us today, so I won't be able to get into that, but I I found it very different from state to state. Vermont was very different, where we actually sat down, pro and con um, uh, proponents, uh, other actuaries sat down, and we had a debate about what the costs were and why we came up with certain things. But in 2002, um, Paul Wellstone actually passed away. And that work was really picked up by Patrick Kennedy and Ted Kennedy and a Republican Senator Al Simpson, who also believed in mental health parity. So we continued to process that whole concept of getting mental health being treated the same as physical health, working more with Democrats than with Republicans. But I also worked with Newt Gingrich, and he came around mainly because his mother had some issues around mental health and depression, and he got to see and understand that it wasn't just weakness of character, that it was a chemical imbalance and could be treated. So after testifying in 40 states and getting different laws passed in different states, some around broad mental health parities, some around um, specific um, high-level mental health illnesses, what they call serious mental health illnesses, um, that left out some of the more uh, areas of depression and and high stress, Uh, we got... um, a mishmash across the country of mental health legislation. Well, all that came back in 2008 to ultimately get passed the 2008 Mental Health Parity Act. And it was referred to as the Paul Wellstone and Pete Domenici Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. It was really one of the highlights of my career to actually get that passed. And it's now accepted that you can't treat physical health without recognizing the mental health parts and that they are one and the same, that you can't treat a diabetic who's being resistant to medications or having troubles if they're depressed. So you can't separate those things. And we not only got this passed on the commercial side, but we actually changed the the way there was differences in the uh, Medicare uh, mental health benefits, and we equalized those as well. So this is a very exciting time of my life to get through this, the stories are, are, are plentiful throughout this whole process. I've given you a little bit of a flavor, and I hope you also understand a little bit about how the sausage is made in Washington, D.C. Well, thank you for your time today. I hope this was interesting. We'll come back and tell more stories at a later date, but we're going to get into mental health parity as we get closer to the legislation. We'll get into mental health reform and national health reform in a broadest sense as well as we move into uh, the election this year 
where health care is going to be a big issue both before and after the election. See you next week. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.